Well, good morning, Sailorville. I don't recognize half of you, so I definitely need to introduce myself. Quick introduction. If you guys have ever heard my dad say in every other sermon that he's ever preached that there were two kids that he had that were on a highway to hell at one point, John was one. So let's not forget that. And I, <laughs> and I might have been the other. Who knows? The facts are a little bit blurred there. But either way, it's probably good to put a face to the name that he keeps talking about. Um, so, but God wasn't done writing my story. Amen? Amen? Like he's not done with many of yours. I ran back to Jesus, but it wasn't without all the efforts of everybody here at this church. So I want to start off my sermon by saying thank you. For real, thank you. I think right off the bat, dang, I'm crying already. My goodness, this is going to be a long one. Uh, I think right off the bat of Mark Lang, who when I was 11 years old, we went to Iowa Regular Baptist Camp, and he preached the gospel to me and led me to Jesus when I was 11 years old. And then I immediately think of Abe Miller right over here. He deserved a round of applause because if it wasn't for Abe, I wouldn't be following Jesus today. I mean, if you guys know my story, I ran into drug addiction. I ran into that party lifestyle, and then God took me out of it but I was still really, really struggling with my addictions, and Abe had patience with a knucklehead like me to continue to every single Monday night at Starbucks at 8 p.m. He would show up and teach my brother John and Brett Funkhauser and Caleb Borsma and Caleb Pilcher how to follow Jesus. I mean, that is a hard task. <laughs> I, owe my, I honestly owe my life to Abe Miller. And then I, then I think of Chuck DeClean. You guys love Chuck. The Chuck Wagon is what I call him. He... Uh, <laughs> When I was trying to figure out how God had gifted me, how I could actually be used in the church for his glory, I started to go on the evangelism team and go out calling with him, and he showed me how to lead somebody to Jesus by caring for them first so that I could point them to the one who cared the most for them, and that's Jesus Christ. And then I think of my brother John. He's been my best friend my whole life, and he always will be. And then I think of my mom and dad. I can't look at them in the face, otherwise I'll start crying if I look at my mom. Um, uh, I can't think of two people who have had a deeper impact on me than my mom and dad. They've uh, showed me how to be a loving husband and how to parent my kids well despite all the waves and the trials and tribulations that would come with life to honor God first and foremost, and that's my parents. And that's to not even, I wouldn't even have time to thank all of you, all the countless amounts of prayers that you guys have had, the opportunities that you've given me that I didn't deserve, all the advice you gave me that I desperately needed, and the gospel that you preached to me that reigns true even in my life today, amen? So I, I unlike most of you, get the opportunity from a stage to just say thank you. Seriously, thank you. And the other day I had somebody come up to me and they were like, hey, so, so, so you're planning a church, right? I was like, yes, yes I am. And they said, they said, so what's your church going to feel like? I was like, that's the weirdest question I've ever been asked, but I guess I'll try to answer it. And I told them, it's going to have the ministry philosophy of the Salt Network, but every single Sunday morning is going to feel like Sailorville. Because you guys do a great job, and I mean the best job I've ever seen, of making somebody feel like they belong before they believe. That's what you guys do. You make everyone feel like they're part of the family of God before they're even in the family of God. And you show them that, that by your love, it's just reflecting Jesus' love, and then they desperately want the gospel in their life. That's who you are. So because of your foundation and your guys' pouring into me, I get the opportunity to be the lead pastor and plant a church in Bloomington, Normal, Illinois in the fall of 2022. I'm so excited. So excited. 
All that to say, thank you. Enough of this mushy-gushy stuff. Let's get to preaching. Amen? All right. I've got a few questions for you. Married people, married people in the room, how did you come to love your spouse? Think about that. How did you actually get there? Was it a one-second thing? Was it like a, like a weird, like, love-at-first-sight thing? No. Single people, how would you like to fall in love? What if I told you that for the small price of $12,000, you could get the man or woman of your dreams? Would you want that? The desperate people are like, eh, well, I don't think you actually would. There's something shallow about that. There's something that's fake about that, isn't it? In our text today, there's a man in our story who has a love question for Jesus, and he gets God's love for him all wrong. Horribly wrong. And many of you in this room are seeing God's love the way that he is, and you're just as blind as him. Is that you today? Many of you guys are empty in your relationship with God. You don't feel the same love of God that you, maybe you did have. Maybe you guys are searching and clawing for your purpose in life, and you just don't have it. Does Jesus have an answer for you? Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. As you're turning there, I gained a lot of inspiration and knowledge from this one documentary called American Gospel, Christ Crucified. If you're looking for a great documentary to watch and you're a nerd like me, American Gospel, Christ Crucified. A bunch of evangelical pastors who have a ton of great points about the gospel and how we screw it up. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before Jesus and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm going to read that again because that's super, super, super important. Verse 17, as Jesus was setting out on a journey, Jesus is about to leave, but just this random guy walks up to him, knelt down before him, and asked him one question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I have three points today. Point number one, the problem. Point number one is the problem. This guy walks right up, this random guy walks up to Jesus with this horrible problem. He wants eternal life. He wants to be in, in good standing with God. He, and I think, actually, at the heart of it, he wants to be deeply loved by God. So, what can he do? And I actually really appreciate this guy. He has the confidence and the gusto to walk up to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and beg him for his affection. But he says a word that should catch us off guard. He said, what must I, what? What must I do? To inherit eternal life. What must I do? So essentially, he wants to do things for God in order to gain God's affection. Is that wrong? Pretty much how our world works. Is that wrong? I think it actually shows how this man wanted to see how he could be good enough for God. And this is what we call Christian moralism. Christian moralism, that's, that's you only preaching the commands and morals of Scripture and nothing else. Christian moralism tells you, be good and God will love you. Be good and God will love you. And that's what this man believes. Let's see how Jesus responds. Look at verse 18. Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. I love that question. 
No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus is saying, hey, 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 technically, no one is good enough for God. Like, God is good, but no one is good enough. I mean, you've seen these commands, a lot of them in the Ten Commandments. You know, these impossible to follow perfectly commands. What do you think about them? Well, let's look at how he responds. Verse 20, he said to Jesus, Teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. (laughs) Wrong answer. I've kept all of these from my youth. Yikes. You can have two responses to the moral, moral gospel. The first one is this. Been there, done that, I've checked off that box. I did it. Been there, done that, checked off that box. Let's keep track. He goes up to Jesus and says, hey, how, what must I do to inherit, inherit eternal life? Jesus is like, well, there's, you got to be perfect. And he goes, boom, I did it. I've done it. Me too. What's he actually saying? He's saying, I am God. I can save myself. I checked off all the boxes, so why am I still searching? Listen to me. Normally, a checklist person has a checked out heart. I'm going to say that again. Normally, a checklist person has a checked out heart. I'm not talking about somebody who's detail-oriented. This is someone who sees God as a God who weighs your works and kind of sees if you're good enough, and then he loves you. So in order to gain this affection, you, you check off all the boxes of your good works, assuming that God will love you because of them. A list doesn't equal love. A list doesn't equal love. The mind of a checklist person exchanges wonder for work. They exchange doing for devotion, and this is a problem. Because a checklist person is really just desperately seeking acceptance because they don't have it somewhere else. Apparently, this man thought his wealth would satisfy his inmost desires for his love. But it's leaving him searching, is this you? Are you checking off boxes assuming that they will lead you to satisfaction and deep fulfillment and love of God? Because checklist Christianity always leads to a checked out heart. His question, he's saying, he's saying, hey, what must I do actually shows his salvation model. Let me, let me show you his salvation model. He's looking at God, and he's essentially saying, hey, hey um, I think faith, faith is good, uh, plus works, yeah, 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 that, that equals salvation. Boom. What's wrong with that? He's saying, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Faith in Jesus. I need to have faith in Jesus. But what Jesus did on the cross and his whole perfect life wasn't quite good enough for me. So Jesus got me 90% of the way there. So I need to add my works in there and then I'll be saved. Here's the problem with that. Faith is no longer the root of your salvation. Works becomes the root of your salvation. These are roots. In case you didn't know, I'm not a very good... Never claimed to be an artist. I'm a preacher. Here's the problem. If your salvation depends on you at all in any way, the focus then becomes you. If being right in God's eyes, if actually getting God's love depends on you even just 1%, it becomes all about you. That's his problem. 
Let's see how far it takes him because Jesus is in the process of actually exposing his real issue. And it's not a hand issue, it's a heart issue. Look at verse 21. Looking at him, after he was essentially claimed that he was perfect, Jesus loved him. I love that phrase. He didn't light him up because of his horrible theology. He saw somebody who was lost like a sheep without a shepherd, and Jesus looks him in the eyes. He just loved him. And Jesus said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Then come and follow me. Jesus told him to sell all that he had so he would have treasure in heaven. Doesn't that sound wrong? <laughs> Hello works. There's, there's a tension there. Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? What is he doing? I think Jesus loved him enough to call him out on what mattered to him the most. And that was his idol. The rest of this time, I'm going to be talking about an idol. Idol worship. I'm going to define an idol for you. If you're taking notes, write this down. An idol is what you worship that becomes your identity. An idol is what you worship that becomes your identity. The other day I was driving in my car and I was listening to the radio and on came an artist called Ariana Grande. Voice of God, but she has trashy music. Don't look her up. Um, she, had, she had this song titled, God is a Woman. Essentially, the whole premise of this song is how she can sexually please a man. And the whole point is this. Essentially, all she's saying is, I'm going to be so good at what I do that by the time I'm done, you're going to leave worshiping. Isn't that what an idol promises you? An idol promises you this. An idol says, hey, you can have the world if you worship me with no strings attached. No big deal. I'm going to give you the world. But what an idol actually gives you is just enough pleasure to keep you coming back but never enough to leave you fully satisfied. That's what an idol does. An idol has a way of starting off beautiful and innocent and then becoming a monster. Idols usually never start off terrible, but eventually they take a stranglehold on your heart and control you. And the hardest part of giving up your idol is that you eventually find your identity in it. So if you give up your idol, it feels like you're giving away a part of yourself. This man, this rich young ruler, had money. But money wasn't just what he had, it was who he was. Money and wealth aren't bad in and of themselves. It just depends on how you steward it. But this man allowed the lure and the lust of wealth to take the steering wheel of his life and just run it off the cliff. And in the end, he was investing his eternity on what he earned in money and good deeds on earth and assuming it would give him a ticket into heaven. If this isn't the idol of Ankeny in Des Moines, Iowa, I don't know what is. Would you agree? Look at verse 21 again. Looking at because I want you to see the heart of what Jesus is trying to get at. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. I think Jesus is saying, if we talk about this, I'm going to have an avenue into what matters most to you. 
what is at the core of what you love, what defines who you are. And if you give this up, you could be ready to receive me. But a checklist person has a checked out heart. Want to know how this man fooled himself into thinking he was good enough? He just didn't put his idol on the list. When Jesus is like pointing at all these commands, he's like, ah, if it's not on the list, it doesn't exist. What's the big deal? You see that? Look at verse 22. How does he respond? But he was dismayed by this demand. And he went away grieving because he had many possessions. I think it's ironic that his works didn't work. I think it's ironic that his works didn't work. Remember how I said there are two responses to the moral gospel? The first one is, hey, been there, done that, checked off that box. The second one is despair. I'll never add up, so I guess I'll just give up. Look at verse 22. But he was dismayed by this demand. And he went away grieving. He was deeply grieved in his heart because he had many possessions. Disobedience only left him in further depression. His gut told him he was still searching, but his heart told him to just walk away. Many of you are deeply dissatisfied with your life and your goals for being loved and feeling loved by God. So you walk into the church wondering week after week, what is wrong with God? But the problem is you. The problem is the idol that has a stranglehold on your heart and is running you right off the cliff. What Jesus is saying is don't check the list, check your heart. Jesus sees that this man has good intentions, but he doesn't have a posture of surrender. A pastor once said this, he said, the only way to life or love from God is through the narrow gate of full surrender. And through that gate, we may take not what we want, but only what God allows for this man, his wealth was the problem. Point number two, or point number one was the problem, which was his idol. Point number two is this, the effect. Point number two is the effect. Look at verse 23. What was the effect of this moment? Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. And again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? Who can possibly be saved? After Jesus says, man, it is pretty much impossible for anybody to go to heaven, two times the disciples are astonished, flabbergasted, jaws to the floor. Because back in, back in the day, if you had wealth or you had possessions, it was seen as divine favor and blessing from God. You're like, what? The rich people got it all figured out. These are the people that God loves the most. Look at what he's doing for them. And while money is a blessing, it can also be a curse if it takes your heart with it. Wealth tends to distract you from the things that eternally matter, then it hinders you from trusting in God. Jesus says, how hard it is for somebody with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Then he like pauses and he's like, ah. How hard it is for anyone to enter the kingdom of God. Want to know why? Essentially, what he's saying is how hard it is for anyone who is blinded by an idol to see something better right in front of them. Jesus Christ. I'm right in front of this man. 
and I'm loving him, and I'm showing him love, and he's blind. I think that's at least half this room. The effect of an idol is that you project what that idol gives you onto who God is. Let me explain. This rich man sees God as a transactional God. His idol is wealth, so why wouldn't God be transactional? This is what I worship. God, I will do good for you, then you will give me love. Heavenly transaction, big deal. That's not how God works. That's never been how God works. If your idol is transactional, ah, well, then I guess maybe God is. If your idol is just fleeting, well, then, ah, I don't know, I guess maybe God is. If your idol leaves you chasing it, then God does. You can't know God that way. Jesus' main point is this. I don't want a heavenly transaction. I want a heart of surrender. The effect of idol worship is that it never leads you to Christ. It only leads you to compromise. The problem is the idol. The effect is that it messes up your vision of who God is. I'm so messed up, I have two idols. I have two idols. My first one is uh, looking for acceptance. When I walk into a room, I want to be accepted and loved by everybody in the room. My second idol is power. I want to feel the most powerful when I walk into a room, so I'll do anything to get it which deeply affects how I view God, which deeply affects how I see God views me. What's the solution? Because each and every single one of us has an idol. We have that one thing that we just worship that is slowly but surely becoming our identity, and many of you guys didn't even know it. Point number three is this, the solution. Point number three is the solution. Look at verse 26. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Amen? That's one of the most famous verses in the Bible. It's probably stitched into your grandma's pillow. But it's in the context of an idol gripping somebody's heart. God is saying that sinful man can never be good enough to get to heaven. It's impossible. In this passage, what is impossible for us that isn't for God? You know what's impossible for me? And it is daily impossible for me. You guys heard my story. Back in the day when I was 20, 19, 20, trying to follow Jesus, it was impossible for me to give up my addictions. Impossible. I couldn't do it. Every single week, I would get backhanded by Abe, spiritually speaking. <laughs> Because I would show up and I'd be like, well, yeah, I partied this weekend. Yeah, I'm still smoking a pack a day. Yes, I'm still smoking all the time, doing all these drugs, and I could not give it up. And I remember driving down Ankeny Boulevard one day, and I started to roll down my window because I wanted to get rid of my drugs. I was littering, so get, just forget that I sinned. It doesn't matter. As I'm driving... I grab my drugs, throw them out the window. I grab my cigarettes, throw them out the window. I grab my lighters, I throw them out the window. And I was so desperate for God to get rid of them. I started yelling. I said, God, I can't do this. You have to take it away from me. I think God was doing this thing where he was bringing me so low so that I trusted in his strength and not my own. And I haven't even touched him since. You know what's impossible for us that isn't for God? Making idol worshiping 
sin-cursed people bow in the presence of the Almighty God and place their full faith in Him and only Him alone. I can't do that. You can't do that. Only God can. So he was wrong on how he viewed salvation. The gospel is not faith plus works equals salvation. That's bad news. The good news is this. Faith equals salvation plus works. Let me explain. Faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone in his perfect life, in his sacrificial death, and in his victorious resurrection, in Jesus and only Jesus saves you. And then the second you get saved, your works aren't the root of your salvation. The second you get saved, they become the fruit of your salvation. This is a beautiful tree. <laughs> I'll give you art lessons later. Think about that. Jesus, he's not sitting back saying, hey, be good enough, and then I'll save you. He's saying, I'm going to save you no matter who you are, no matter what you struggle with, and because you're saved, you're now going to look like me because I was so good to you. The law of works says do. The gospel of Jesus says done. The gospel is not, hey, what, what would Jesus go? Now go and do that. The gospel is actually, look at what Jesus did, now go and believe that. Jesus is saying, I don't want a heavenly transaction. I want a heart of surrender. My love can't be purchased by you. It was purchased by me. Now go and look like me. But many times, even after we're saved, if you're honest with yourself, we mess this up. I'm not doubting that many of you got it right at that moment of salvation. But something happens in our walks with Jesus where all of a sudden we forget the gospel and we start actively walking like this. And it feels like you're consistently juggling plates of God's love and wondering if the second you sin, you're going to fall out of God's love and you got to pick them up yourself. And it's this constant cycle where you feel like you're falling in and out of love with Jesus. This happens to me all the time. Why is that? Could it be that you got this equation right when you got saved, but you've got it wrong now. Peter might have the solution. Look at verse 28. Peter began to tell Jesus, look, we have, left, we have left everything and followed you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time, in houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children in fields with persecutions, and eternal life in the age to come. Guys, these verses aren't saying you're going to get a lot of moolah and guap and money the second you come into the family of God. That would be nice. But that's not what it's saying. Actually, what it's saying is that when you give up in your temporary life, what you give up in your temporary life now will pay off eternally more than you could ever possibly imagine. True love is pouring out because you've been loved, not working hard so that you'll be loved. And Jesus says that these disciples truly have given away everything because they've been so deeply loved and affected by Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, he's pointing back, he's saying the rich young ruler kept everything, but he actually lost everything. He forgot what his best investment was in the kingdom of God. Christian, Church, your best investment 
is not in yourself, it's in God. Which means, if we're looking at the text right now, which means that God wants your idol to be intentionally dropped. If your idol is money, give it away. See how it just loses its power over you. And honestly, one of the sins that most churches never talk about is greed. This is America. This is you. I guarantee you one of your idols is money. And here's the thing. You guys need to give your money towards what matters most. You guys are in a church whose main goal is not to fill up seats in an auditorium. It's to fill up heaven with souls through church planting. Amen? That's what you guys are part of. You guys aren't part of a church. You're part of a movement of God. Throw your money at this place. Throw it out there. What could possibly better be a better use of your money? Think about it. When you have a lens of eternity, what could possibly be a better use of your money? My point is this. If you feel like you've fallen out of love with God, it might be because what you're doing for God is rooted more in you and not in him. God wants you to have a gospel lens when you do good. The only way to practically flip that around is daily surrendering your idols like Jesus surrendered his life for you. But how do we do this? Notice how I haven't really actually answered that question for you. And is it annoying half of you? Hopefully it is. <laughs> What's the solution? How do we actually let go of our idols? I want to think of it this way. Imagine... I saw a pastor do this once. Imagine this water bottle is your idol that you hold near and dear to your heart and you just can't quite let go of it. You want Jesus, absolutely, but man, you just really want this. It's different for everybody, but we all have that idol that we hold on so tightly. In order to get rid of it, you have to drop your idol. And in the process, you'll realize that your hands are open to receive Jesus. What's it going to take for you to let go so you can get Jesus? And when you lay down your idol at the feet of Jesus, he gives you him. What could be better than Jesus? And I titled this message, The Problem with the Good News. Because the good news requires you to give up something. But you get Jesus. You have no idea what giving up can give you. If the problem is the idol, the solution is surrender. Jesus never backs down from saying that in order to have me, you need to be willing to surrender all the small things so that I can give you everything. And for many of you today, it's a salvation thing. But also for a lot of you, it's a following Jesus thing. I have three questions for you to write down and take with you and ponder over them and talk with your spouse or your friends with. The first question is this, what is your idol? What is your idol? You cannot defeat what you don't define. That's Craig Groeschel. What is your idol? Define it. Question number two, how is it affecting how you see God? Is he a transactional God to you now? How is it affecting how you see God? Question number three, 
Are you willing to drop your idol so you can follow Jesus? Are you willing to drop your idol so that you can follow Jesus? God, I thank you so much for Sailorville Church. I thank you for everything you're doing in this church. God, I thank you that they're actually part of one half of 1% of churches that are actually planting churches. God, I pray that everybody in this room would not get the gospel wrong. I know that there are so many people in this room that don't know you at all. They've been looking at the gospel as, yes, Jesus, you did so many good things. You're this great guy. You died and all that stuff, but, but it wasn't quite good enough for me. And they've been desperately trying to juggle these plates, trying to be good enough for you, God. And all of a sudden, they found themselves having zero satisfaction in life, zero purpose in life, not feeling loved by anyone. God, I pray that today they would have the opposite reaction of the rich young ruler and that they would drop their idols so that they could actually receive you and place their faith in you and be fully known, fully loved by God who is willing to wipe away every sin of theirs. God, I pray for the Christian in this room who they've been a Christian for decades, but they've got the equation wrong today. They woke up feeling lackluster about their walk with Christ. They woke up feeling almost borderline numb. God, I pray that they would actually drop their idols so they can see that they are never more loved than they are today. They can never do enough wrong things to fall out of love with God. If Jesus was so good to them while they were an enemy, how good could he be today while they're his friend? God, I pray that they would stop being consumers in the kingdom of God, but that they would start being contributors. Your name I pray.